standing up for civil liberties this holiday season. Why Asian Americans are waking up to politics. And the Twitter files show it's time to reimagine free speech online. Welcome to Fair News Weekly. To read all of the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit this podcast's episode description. Now a letter from Bayan Bartning. Dear friends of FAIR, as our family prepares to celebrate the fifth night of Hanukkah and other families are getting ready for Christmas, my thoughts are with Daniel Marquez, the young child in Cape Coral, Florida, who FAIR has been standing up for ever since his wrongful arrest and incarceration earlier this year. On May 28, 2022, 10-year-old Daniel Marquez was arrested at his Florida home by the Lee County Sheriff's Office, led by Carmine Marcino. Daniel was booked, handcuffed, perp-walked, and incarcerated in a juvenile detention facility without his parents for nearly two weeks without any charges having been filed. Within three hours of the arrest, Marcino, who has a history of publicly accusing kids in this way, posted Daniel's name, mugshot, and a perp walk video on the department's Facebook page. Marcino justified his arrest and treatment of Daniel based on private text messages Daniel had sent to his friend. However, based on an audio recording obtained by the Lee County Sheriff's Office, it was clear that the deputies who arrested Daniel knew that his text messages, which started with an absurd claim that he had scammed a trillion dollars from his friend, were intended as a joke. Earlier this afternoon, a reporter for Wink News, a local television station in Fort Myers, Florida, reported on the case. They say... In a Lee County Sheriff's Office recording obtained exclusively by Wink News, you can hear detectives ask about the questions and react to Daniel's explanation before arresting him. Daniel returns the phone and reads, I scammed my friend Jacob. It was just a fake inaudible. Derek, you're fine. Detective McCarrath, I mean, you can hold it, but wow, for a lot of money? Daniel, yeah, it was just a joke. Detective laughs. So there's a photo of a bunch of cash. Is that your thumb? Daniel. No. Detective McCarrath. Or just a picture from the internet? Daniel. It's just a picture. You can see here the search. Several days after arresting Daniel, Marcino's office posted a video on TikTok that included doctored and manipulated versions of Daniel's text messages, set to ACDC's Shoot to Thrill. Marcino appeared on dozens of media outlets and made false claims that Daniel had threatened to commit a mass shooting. It took weeks for Daniel's father to get his son released from juvenile detention. Daniel was in fifth grade, an honor roll student, and a Boy Scout with no history of behavioral problems. Up until his arrest, Daniel enjoyed the anonymity and privacy that our justice system typically protects in the interest of children. Now, his name and image have been circulated throughout the internet, along with patently false accusations against him. We are confident that justice will prevail and are providing legal and other support to Daniel and his family, but those printed words and viral images will follow him forever. This case goes far beyond the excessive behavior on the part of Marcino and even the irreparable harm done to Daniel and his family. If a child can be arrested at the whim of a local politician, locked up and prosecuted for an obvious attempt at humor, then our own rights are also at risk. On July 14th, Fair formally requested that the United States Department of Justice open an investigation into the Sheriff's Office of Lee County, Florida, for violating Daniel's civil rights. Fair has retained an attorney to defend Daniel, and we are standing by the Marquez family. 
This case is an example of how social media can be used to destroy a person's reputation and an attempt to criminalize an obvious attempt at humor by a 10-year-old child. In the words of Alex Says, the civil rights attorney Fair hired to represent the Marquez family, the charge filed against Daniel, written or electronic threat to kill, do bodily injury, or conduct a mass shooting or an act of terrorism doesn't fit. It has to be a reasonableness standard. And this is one of the reasons why we do these things, not in the media, but we do them in a court of law. What is that comment? What did he text? Not what would you have liked him to text? Not what you think he said. What did he actually say? And was it a threat? And did he pose a threat to anybody? The problem with it is, when we're trying to litigate on emotion, we're trying to litigate fear, which causes fear in another. It's harder to get the intent of the person, but that's what's crucial, right? Not only did Daniel not intend to scare his friend with his text message, it was objectively not a threat, and that's what matters. FAIR is committed to advancing civil rights and liberties for all Americans, including children. As Says pointed out to the Wink News reporter, quote, They have to know that there are rules and there are civil rights and there are due process rights that apply to everyone. If we aren't willing to fight for our children, who are we willing to fight for? If we don't stand up for the rights of Daniel Marquez, then our own rights to free speech and due process are also at risk. If you would like to support the Marquez family, please consider donating to their legal defense fund. Yours, Brian Bartning. This week on our Substack, Ryan Hall wrote about political bias at Western Kentucky University, the effect this has had on students' ability to learn and engage with ideas they disagree with, and how speaking up about this cost him his job. Hall writes... A 2020 study shows that, by a tremendous margin, students of all political persuasions report that college faculty express more liberal views in class. 64% of very liberal students reported being in a course that espoused liberal perspectives frequently or all the time. Only 6% of the very liberal reported hearing conservative messaging frequently. These numbers are consistent with the other end of the spectrum, as 63% of the very conservative responders reported frequently hearing liberal messaging and only 12% heard from the right regularly. In the same study, 85% of very conservative students in the arts, humanities, and religion majors felt that they are not simply hearing the messages, but feeling pressured with all the terms ugly, unethical connotations. While the liberal bent of the humanities isn't news, the data also shows that very conservative students with health-related majors feel the same ideological pressure 65% of the time. Nearly 30% of conservative students in the health majors also report feeling pressured. These numbers suggest that faculty aren't just failing to maintain neutrality, they are actively proselytizing. For the New York Post, Fair Advisor Yatin Chu wrote about how her recent experience testifying in front of city council revealed deeply rooted anti-Asian sentiments held by public officials. She says, Powell's racist rant was delivered in the presence of three council members without interruption or admonishment. Committee Chair Natasha Williams even thanked Powell for his testimony. It's as if his anti-Asian hate speech in the chamber was unremarkable white noise. It took hours after online pressure from constituents for those present to issue generic disapproval statements, retweeting other electeds' condemnation, and saying both sides share blame for systemic racism. Like many Asian Americans, I'm a property owner and a small landlord. When I graduated, my parents encouraged me to live at home, pay off my debt, and save to buy a property. I lived at home for a few years and paid off my student loans as quickly as I could. Decades later, I bought my first investment property. 
I rented to mostly young men and women at the start of their careers. As a landlord, I treated my tenants the way I wanted to be treated, fairly and responsibly. I'm fortunate real estate brokers and condo management could conduct criminal and credit checks, not only for my benefit, but for the safety of neighbors in the building. For Persuasion, Fair Advisor Shadi Hamid wrote about the paradox of liberalism. Hamid writes, It didn't used to be like this. There was a time when democracy seemed boring. Political scientists lamented the apathy and indifference of democratic citizens. Today, apathy doesn't seem to be the problem. Across Western democracies, political engagement and excitement are rising. If anything, there's too much excitement. But looked at through an optimist's eyes, vigorous debate and the polarization that results is not an indictment of a democracy, but rather evidence that democracy is doing what it should. In the U.S. midterms, worst-case scenarios of democracy dying, to the extent they were ever plausible, did not come to pass. Trump-endorsed election deniers failed spectacularly. When the results came in, most of the GOP's furthest-right candidates readily conceded. For Free Black Thought, David L. Bernstein wrote about his experience with diversity in its current iteration and how it is often performative cruelty masquerading as enlightened diversity. He writes, As painful as these encounters could be, they formed my understanding of diversity. Project Rape showed me what people could accomplish if they worked together and became a model for diversifying societal institutions. The model of diversity I valued brought together people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, viewpoints, and experiences, often but not always generating a common vision for addressing social challenges. Political scientist Yasha Munk calls this model of diversity cultural patriotism, enlisting a diverse array of ethnicities and cultures in forming a single nation. By the same token, the Black writer and music critic Albert Murray speaks of antagonistic cooperation, which he sees in music, literature, and race relations. Antagonistic cooperation exists when two persons or groups satisfy a common interest while minor antagonisms of interest are suppressed. I understood diversity as fostering both cultural patriotism and antagonistic cooperation. No one needed to lose for others to win. Society need not be a zero-sum game. For New York Magazine, Jonathan Chite wrote about how attempts to shut down criticism and thoughtful investigation of youth gender medicine does a disservice to trans kids and how the media has responded to calls for more thorough research into these treatments. He states, Both sides of this debate within the medical community agree that trans people do not require medical and social supports without stigma. The disagreement lies in the process and speed of the appropriate treatment. The treatment regime, supported by most of the trans activist community, calls for gender-affirming care that puts kids on the process to transition in relatively rapid order, highly aware of the risk of going too slow, that transgender children will be denied care they need and grow despondent or even suicidal. More traditional treatment models call for more cautious progression to medicalization and surgery, focused on the risk of moving too fast, that children will be mistakenly diagnosed with gender dysphoria and will have long-term side effects from treatment that they will later come to regret. Progressive activists have not just embraced the gender-affirming care model. They have begun treating any disagreement with it as hateful denial that trans people exist. Indeed, they have frequently denied that any debate exists within the medical community at all. For Persuasion, David French wrote about why viewpoint neutral is not a synonym for unmoderated and how we can reimagine free speech online. 
French writes, The principle of viewpoint neutrality means that any regulation of speech, including time, place, and manner regulations, should be crafted and enforced without regard to the underlying viewpoint of the speaker. The same rules apply to Democrats and Republicans alike, to Christians and atheists, to soldiers and pacifists. The same rules apply even to people who hold the most reprehensible viewpoints, including communists and fascists. Along with viewpoint neutrality, there's another key constitutional principle that's critical to maintaining the marketplace of ideas, clarity. Rules that are vague or overboard can chill free speech every bit as effectively as a rule that specifically targets disfavored speech for censorship. Even otherwise acceptable time, place, and manner regulations can be unlawful if they grant to public officials too much discretion to restrict speech. We want the Fair Substack to be the go-to publication for diverse perspectives on culture and civil rights. Whether you're a seasoned author or an amateur writer with a story that can contribute to our mission of promoting fairness, understanding, and humanity. We would love to receive your stories, opinions, investigations, reviews, interviews, and more. Please send your piece to submissions at fairforall.org. We hope to hear from you. Finally, if you liked this podcast, subscribe, share with a friend, and leave us a rating and review. Make sure to check out our newsletter and weekly roundup to read more into any of this week's stories, or visit the episode description. Donations are always welcome at fairforall.org donate.